Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Shelby. And you're listening to the Creepy Jackasses. Learn to love me. I'm all Greg. <laughs> I'm all Greg. Today on the creepy burrito, we're talking about oh Greg. How close can you get to Bailey's without getting your eyes That was bad. Does old Greg have a mangina? <laughs> you see my mangina. You see my downstairs mix up. My downstairs mix up. So Renee, what are you gonna tell me about today? Hmm. Just because you asked so nicely. (laughs) Thank you. I'm polite. (laughs) I'm going to tell you a tale about Cleopatra's Lost Tomb. So, like, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, right? Elizabeth Taylor! (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor! She was in that, uh, she was the broad that was in that movie with uh, the Cleopatra and the the love thing. Nah, see here, Elizabeth Taylor, yeah, see, she's in that movie. Which actually was uh, the most expensive movie ever. Sure was. To make. But no, I am not talking about Elizabeth Taylor. I am talking about Cleopatra. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that a majority, if not all, of our listeners know who Cleopatra is. She is one of the most famous women who has ever lived. And she's inspired poets and playwrights and all kinds of artists around the world for over 2,000 years. But in case you've been living under a rock, I'll provide you with a brief synopsis. Also, don't worry when I say brief, because nothing about (laughs) me is brief. Brief means long as hell in Renee's world, especially when it has to do with Egypt, because I'm fucking obsessed with Egypt. Have you ever seen that meme going around where it's like, gun to your head, what movie can you recite line by line? The Mummy. The Mummy. <laughs> of course. Back up, The Mummy too. <laughs> like, I know yes. all of the lines from those movies. Anyway, Cleopatra the seventh Philippator, or better known as simply Cleopatra, was the last ruler of the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt. Or, to simply put it, she was the last actual pharaoh of Egypt. Cleopatra was born in 69 A. BC, <laughs> which is roughly over 2,000 years ago. Now, I know what you're thinking. Holy fuck, that's a long time ago. But by the time Cleopatra was born, Egypt already had a history spanning for over 3,000 years. For example, the Great Pyramid of Giza was built around 2580 BC which is about 2,510 years before Cleopatra was born. Cleopatra died in 30 BC, which is about 2,049 years ago. So we are roughly 461 years closer to Cleopatra than she was to the Great Pyramid. Oh. Mm -hmm. Another example is that King Tut died in 1324 BC, about 
255 years before Cleopatra was ever born. So basically what I'm trying to get here is that Cleopatra was at the very end of what we know of today as ancient Egypt. So here's where my brief history lesson comes in. (laughs) Now I'm not going to go into the entire history of the pyramids or the dynasties of ancient Egypt because there is a lot and we will be here all day. But for the sake of this history lesson, all you need to know is that the Persians conquered Egypt back in 525 BC and it was under their rule. Until this one dude came along. You may have heard of him. Goes by the name of Alexander the Great. After the assassination of his father, Alexander the Great assumed the throne at the age of 20 and used his authority to proceed with his father's Panhellenic project to lead the Greeks in conquest of Persia. And the Persians quite literally handed over Egypt to him without a fight. When Alexander conquered Egypt, he was welcomed by the Egyptians as a deliverer or a liberator after being oppressed under the Persians for so long. So much so that the Egyptians pronounced he was the son of the deity Amon. Alexander was far more tolerant than the Persians ever were. He embraced their gods, prayed at their temples, and even built a temple to honor the Egyptian mother goddess Isis. During his stay in Egypt, he also founded the city Alexandria in his name, which would then go on to be the capital of the Ptolemaic kingdom. Alexander went on to create one of the largest empires in the ancient world, stretching from Greece to northwestern India. He kept his throne for another 13 years until his death, which in itself is also kind of a mystery. We know that Alexander died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon at the age of 32 on either the 10th or the 11th of June, 323 BC. But there are two accounts that tell two versions of the story. One account by Plutarch, a Greek philosopher, says that after a few days of drinking, Alexander developed a fever which worsened until he was unable to speak and eventually died. The second account is by Diodorus, an ancient Greek historian, and he says that Alexander was struck with pain after downing a large bowl of unmixed wine, did not develop a fever, but spent the next 11 days in agony before finally dying. Given the unusual circumstances of how he died and how regular regular assassination attempts were at the time, it was common belief that he was poisoned. The reason why I bring this up is, after the death of Alexander the Great, there was no clear line of succession as to who would rule. He had no obvious or legitimate heir, So his vast territories were partitioned off to his closest friends and companions, known as the Diadochi. However, they almost immediately found themselves at war with one another, starting the wars of the Diadochi, lasting from 322 to 281 BC, a total of 41 years. Ptolemy, one of the seven bodyguards of Alexander the Great, was appointed satrap or governor of Egypt after Alexander's death in 323 BC. But in about 305 BC, during the Fourth War of the Diadochi, he declared himself pharaoh and became Ptolemy I. The Egyptians soon accepted Ptolemy as the successor to the pharaohs of independent Egypt, 
and his bloodline lasted for the next 300 years. Ptolemaic Egypt would remain the wealthiest and most powerful of Alexander's successors and the leading example of Hellenistic civilization. Now, Hellenistic is basically another word for Greek. So like a long, long time ago, the Romans conquered the Hellas and the Romans spoke Latin and the Latin name for Hellenic people was Graecos, which is why we call the Greeks Greek, not Hellenic. It's because we use the Latin root like the Romans did and not the Greek root. Anyway, moving on. Ptolemy I had made Egypt strong and prosperous. And like I said, his bloodline lasted for the next 300 years. All of his male descendants being named after him. Ptolemy II succeeded his father as pharaoh of Egypt and proved to be a great leader as well, expanding territories and funding the expansion of the Library of Alexandria, which his father built and encouraging scientific research. Under Ptolemy II's rule, the Lighthouse of Alexandria was built, which is regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and for many centuries, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world. Ptolemy I and II continued with Alexander the Great's plan for cultural infusion and maintained a Hellenistic lifestyle. They broke millennia of tradition when they based the capital of their Egyptian empire in not Thebes or Luxor, but isolating themselves away in Alexandria. In every respect, they remained completely Greek, both in their language and traditions. However, they coexisted as both Greek monarchs as well as Egyptian pharaohs. The early Ptolemies did not disturb the religion or the customs of the Egyptians, but built magnificent new temples for the Egyptian gods and soon adopted the outward display of the pharaohs of old, which led the Egyptian people to accept them. And like the earlier dynasties of Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty also practiced inbreeding, with mm. many of the pharaohs being married to their siblings and co-ruling with them. However, though, this didn't happen until nearly a century into the dynasty's history, beginning with Ptolemy II, who married his full sister, and then his successors just carried on the family tradition. Scholars believe that these practices were intended to stabilize the bloodline and to make sure the rulership never left the family. Of the 15 Ptolemaic marriages, 10 were between brother and sister, while two were with a niece or cousin. So yes, this means that even Cleopatra was not Egyptian, but Macedonian and also inbred. If you look at her family tree, her father and mother were almost certainly brother and sister, her paternal grandfather also being her maternal great-grandfather. Cleopatra herself was even married to two of her brothers, however, did not produce any children with them. Unfortunately, Ptolemy II was one of the last truly great pharaohs of Egypt. Those who ruled after him were fairly inept, to say it nicely, and failed to strengthen Egypt both internally and externally. The sibling marriage that was meant to strengthen the family line eventually led to jealousy, conspiracies, and assassinations in the pursuit of power. Any blood relative was a potential threat, especially when the throne of Egypt was at stake. For example, Ptolemy IV murdered his uncle, his brother, and his mother, and Ptolemy VIII killed his 14-year-old son and chopped him into pieces. Mm, yikes. Literally everyone was killing everyone. Siblings fighting siblings, mothers decapitating children, it was literally kill or be killed. By the time Cleopatra came to rule, her father had put Egypt into debt. There was famine, 
rampant inflammation, and an oppressive administrative system under the control of corrupt local officials. The Egyptian population was rebelling against the Ptolemies in the form of strikes and desolation of temples. At the same time, Rome was growing in power throughout the region and in Alexandria. With one empire after another falling to the Macedon and the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemies had little choice but to ally with the Romans, a pact that lasted over 150 years. Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII, even declared the Roman Senate as the guardian of the Ptolemaic dynasty. After the death of her father in 51 BC, at the age of 18, Cleopatra was named co-ruler with her younger brother, Ptolemy XIII, who was only 10 years old. Being the older sibling and having ruled for a short time as co-regent with her father, Cleopatra was primarily the dominant ruler over her younger brother. However, in 49 BC, the advisors of Ptolemy XIII instigated a revolt against Cleopatra's rule and expelled her from Alexandria. Cleopatra was forced to flee to Syria, where she then raised an army of mercenaries and returned the following year to face her brother's forces in a civil war. However, when the Roman general Pompey strolled into town, the war between Cleopatra and her brother was put on hold. Pompey was a rival to the famed Julius Caesar and was currently engaged in a civil war with him over the control of the Roman Empire. Pompey was defeated at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC and he sought refuge in Egypt with Caesar hot on his trail. Pompey hoped to gain Ptolemy XIII as an ally and requested a meeting with him. Ptolemy allowed Pompey into his camp and in hopes to get on the good graces of Julius Caesar so he might help him defeat Cleopatra, he immediately had the general assassinated. Ptolemy XIII thought that in exchange for murdering Pompey, Julius Caesar would be in his debt. However, unbeknownst to him, Cleopatra got to Julius Caesar first. Now, legend has it, Cleopatra smuggled herself into Caesar's camp by being wrapped up in a carpet and having her servants deliver it to him. When the carpet was unrolled, the 21-year-old Egyptian queen emerged. It's no doubt that Cleopatra captivated him, but not by her youth or beauty. In our day and age, Cleopatra is often portrayed by Hollywood as the femme fatale or the glamorous seductress, which is just merely an echo of Roman propaganda. Romans painted Cleopatra as a temptress who used her sex appeal as a political weapon. For the men of Rome, Cleopatra was considered an enemy, and this way of thinking is still prominent to this day. Greek philosopher Plutarch claimed that, and I quote, her actual beauty was not so remarkable that none could be compared with her, or that no one could see without being struck by it. But the contact of her presence was irresistible. The character that attended all that she said or did was something bewitching. Mm, so basically saying... Basically saying... She ain't that great looking, but hey. Yeah. She doesn't hurt to look at, and... Her personality's, like, cool. She's, like, a cool chick. Like, fuck yeah, bruh. Yeah, basically saying that (laughs) it wasn't so much her looks that were compelling, but it was her conversation and her intelligence. And unfortunately, sculptures don't really give us much of a clue as to her looks either. There are two or three heads in the classical style, as you see in most Greek or Roman sculptures, 
But there's also a number of full-length depictions in Egyptian style as well. And as you can imagine, her appearance between these are drastically different. Cleopatra definitely took control over the way she appeared, coming across differently according to political need. This could explain the different portrayals of her likeliness. Probably one of the most accurate depictions we have of Cleopatra is the image of her on her coins that she had minted. On the coins, Cleopatra is seen looking very much like her father, with a strong jawline, a hooked nose, a high forehead, sunken in eyes, and a bit of a dented chin. Definitely not the vixen that Hollywood portrays her to be. She's also wearing a diadem, which is a strip of cloth Hellenistic kings wore to symbolize their royalty. So either this is what Cleopatra actually looked like, or this was just another strategic method she had to her madness. Some historians argue that this was simply how Cleopatra wished to be minted on the coins, not how she actually looked. In doing this, it would help her emphasize her inherited right to rule. She was sending a message that she was as valid of a ruler as any of the men who came before her. She was a sharp thinker, a strategic ruler, and very well educated. Cleopatra grew up in Alexandria, where she would have had unlimited access to the Library of Alexandria, which, by the way, contained somewhere between 200,000 and 500,000 book rolls. She would have read all the classics, learned to read and write, she would have learned how to deliver a speech. The best of an ancient education would have been at her disposal. She spoke about nine languages and was educated in mathematics, philosophy, and astronomy. Cleopatra herself was even a writer. She wrote a book called Cosmetics, Mm. and it included remedies for hair loss and dandruff. Egyptian sources later described her as a ruler who elevated the ranks of scholars and enjoyed their company. Egyptians, in fact, were very fond of Cleopatra. She endeared herself to them by participating in many Egyptian festivals and ceremonies, as well as being the only Ptolemy to learn the Egyptian language. This would make sense as to why Caesar was so smitten by her. At the time, he was 52 years old, already married, and any time he wanted could have a young, beautiful woman. But Cleopatra's courageous plot amused him, and he thought it was a brilliant strategy. Had Cleopatra met Caesar through official protocols, it would have interfered with her working her charms upon him. Now, it's hard to say if this whole being rolled up in a carpet thing actually happened, but what we know for sure is that Cleopatra was able to plead her case and whether she had convinced him with just words or the fact that he was a little salty because Ptolemy XIII killed Pompey and he didn't, Julius sided with Cleopatra. I'm also sure that the fact that Cleopatra being the richest woman in the world once back into power didn't hurt either. Caesar was chronically in debt, and after all, he did need to fund his own return to power back in Rome. Either way, four months of war between Caesar's outnumbered forces and those of Ptolemy XIII's, Roman enforcements finally arrived, which forced Ptolemy XIII to flee Alexandria and was believed to have drowned in the Nile River. Caesar then restored Cleopatra to the throne as co-ruler in a nominal sibling marriage with her even younger 12-year-old brother, Ptolemy Mm. XIV. In celebration, they had a triumphal procession on the Nile, which included their ship, plus 400 others, and lasted about two months. 
During that time, what began as a strategic relationship clearly turned romantic. Because when he left for Rome, Cleopatra was pregnant with a child she claimed was Caesar's. Around 47 BC, she gave birth to a son who she named Ptolemy XV, or known by the Egyptian people as Caesarian or Little Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I immediately pizza, think about pizza, pizza, pizza. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just or wait, his pizza, pizza. That's what mm, his thing pizza, was. Pizza, pizza. It's not. He, do they do pizza pizza anymore? Is that a um? That's like Kmart stage. Like of... you remember when Little Caesars used to be like uh, had a combo deal with, mm-hmm. uh, and you would go into Kmart yeah. and then you would see Little Caesars. Mm-hmm. You want just like a now... little Julius Caesar pizza pizza. <laughs> well, now they're just yeah. hot and ready. Yeah, now you know, they're just hot I don't and ready. Even think you see like the little Greek guy. I mean, Cleopatra was obviously hot. And ready. Mm-hmm. Sometime in 46 to 45 BC, Cleopatra traveled with her brother, Ptolemy XIV, and her son, Caesarion, to Rome to visit Caesar, residing in his private villa just outside of Rome. Her presence, however, seemed to cause a little stir. Caesar and Cleopatra were not married, and he did not hide the fact that she was his mistress. Caesar continued his relationship with Cleopatra throughout his entire last marriage, which in Roman eyes did somehow not constitute as adultery. However, most Romans were not particularly enthralled with their relationship and actually found her arrogant. Then when Caesar erected a gilded statue of Cleopatra in the temple of Venus Genetrix, it probably put the final nail in the coffin when the Senate was formulating their plot to remove Caesar. At this time, Caesar had achieved total victory over his rivals and was named dictator. But his enemies in the Roman Senate saw Caesar as power-hungry, possibly even mad with power after having himself declared a god. Mm. They arranged an assassination in which not only his enemies participated in, but also friends. According to Roman historian Eutropius, Around 60 men participated in the assassination, and Caesar was stabbed 23 times. Cleopatra had hoped that her son would be his father's successor as the leader of the Romans, as well as Pharaoh of Egypt. However, Caesar's will named his grandnephew and adopted son, Octavian, as the primary heir, and Cleopatra was forced to flee back to Egypt in 44 BC. Soon after their return, Ptolemy XIV died mysteriously. It is a popular belief that Cleopatra had him murdered in a bid to make her son co-ruler, because after his murder, Caesarion was named co-ruler by his mother at the ripe age of three. Oh, wow, three. Mm -hmm. Of course, he was pharaoh in name only, Cleopatra keeping actual authority, since he's only three. Around this time, Cleopatra had strongly identified herself with the goddess Isis, Now, before Isis was a scary word that we couldn't say in airports, she was known as the goddess of magic and wisdom and the sister wife of Osiris and mother of Horus. Cleopatra also identified her relationship with her son as that of Isis and Horus. This, again, was a political and strategic move. It was an ancient Egyptian tradition for royalty to associate themselves with divinity in order to reinforce their position as kings or queens. Again, she was making a statement that the throne was hers. 
After Caesar's death, Octavian, Mark Antony, Caesar's general and close friend, and Marcus, <laughs> this name is fun, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, mm. another of Caesar's generals, formed a three-man dictatorship known to historians as the Second Triumvirate, and it was at conflict with Caesar's murderers. Cleopatra stayed neutral in the matter when both sides asked Egypt for military aid, Eventually, though, Cleopatra sent four Roman legions stationed in Egypt by Caesar to support the triumvirate. They went on to defeat Caesar's assassins and afterwards divided the government of the Republic between themselves. Cleopatra had been playing coy for a reason, though. Before ultimately deciding who she was going to side with, she needed to see who would be at the advantage to win. Cleopatra wasn't only trying to find the correct team to side with, she was also looking for a new protector who would take the place of Caesar and help her hold her power in Egypt, either Octavian or Mark Antony. It wasn't until Mark Antony called upon her that she decided to make her move. The meeting would allow Cleopatra to clear up the misconception that she had actually supported Caesar's assassins during the Civil War. But Antony also undoubtedly needed Cleopatra's support financially and militarily for his invasion against the Parthian Empire. And why not? Mark Antony was better looking, more charismatic, and recorded as a fun-loving prankster. And, more importantly, he had more experience than Octavian. Cleopatra felt confident that with an alliance and possible romantic relationship with Mark Antony, that she would be able to protect her crown and maintain Egypt's independence. Cleopatra decided to turn this summons into a strategic and theatrical ploy to win Antony, with no doubt of being unable to charm him. She had a giant boat constructed and decorated it lavishly. The ship was clad in gold with purple sails and rowed by oars made of silver. She was dressed to the nines as the goddess Isis and sat beneath a gilded canopy while her handmaidens were dressed as nymphs. She also had pages playing flutes and harps, and she also had incense burners wafting perfume out to the bank. She certainly intended to stun not only Antony, but also all the onlookers to remind them of the power and wealth of Egypt. It was a well-calculated move, and it worked. Cleopatra not only managed to captivate Mark Antony, but she also cleared her name as a supposed supporter of Caesar's assassins and convinced Antony to have Cleopatra's younger sister, Arsinoe, who resided in Rome, executed as she was a possible rival for the throne of Egypt. Mm. Mm -hmm. So Cleopatra invited Antony to come to Egypt before departing, which led Antony to follow her back like a lovesick puppy. In 41 BC, Mark Antony arrived in Alexandria and stayed for quite some time enjoying the lavish royal lifestyle that he had witnessed aboard Cleopatra's ship. Meanwhile, Octavian was beginning to exert his power in Rome in a bid for control over the empire. In 40 BC, Mark Antony returned home to try to conclude a treaty with Octavian. An agreement was reached and there was temporary peace. However, part of the arrangement and to prove his loyalty, Mark Antony married the sister of Octavian, Octavia. After Antony's return to Rome, Cleopatra gave birth to their twins. Alexander Helos and Cleopatra Selene, and Egypt grew more prosperous. Even though Mark Antony was legally married to Octavia, it was 100% political. His heart belonged to Cleopatra, 
And in 37 BC, Antony decided to return to Alexandria after it became clear to him that he and Octavian would never reach a mutual agreement. They again became lovers, married, and Cleopatra gave birth to another son, Ptolemy XVI, in 36 BC. This was not only illegal under Roman law, it was a direct betrayal of Octavian. This makes war between Octavian and Mark Antony inevitable. In a public celebration in 34 BC, known as the Donations of Alexandria, Antony declared Caesarian as Caesar's son and rightful heir, directly opposing Octavian's right to rule, and he awarded land to each of his children with Cleopatra. Mark Antony was hoping that if he could win over the Senate with his claims, then his family could effectively rule the entire Mediterranean. This engaged in a heated war of propaganda that would last for years. Although the distribution of nations among Cleopatra's children did not pose an immediate threat to Octavian's political position, it was the claim that Caesarian was the legitimate heir to Caesar's name that was far more dangerous. Octavian's only power was his link to Caesar through adoption, which won him popularity and loyalty of the legions. To see his claim to the throne attacked by a mere child was something Octavian could not accept. Octavian accused Antony of unlawfully detaining the king of Armenia, marrying Cleopatra despite being married to his sister Octavia, and wrongfully claiming Caesarian as the heir to Caesar instead of Octavian. He also claimed to have found Mark Antony's will, which bequeathed the Roman Empire over to Cleopatra. Worse yet, Mark Antony's will called for moving the empire's capital from Rome to Alexandria. And, as you can imagine, the Roman citizens were outraged. Rumors that Cleopatra had brainwashed Mark Antony with witchcraft and sorcery swarmed through the empire. The accusations and gossip associated with this propaganda war are what have directly shaped today's perceptions about Cleopatra. In late 32 BC, the Roman Senate stripped Antony of all of his titles, and Octavian declared war against Cleopatra. The two sides finally came to a head in 31 BC at the Battle of Actium. Antony and Cleopatra's navy was overwhelmed, and at the height of the battle, Cleopatra, fearing capture, took her ships out and fled back to Egypt. Mark Antony's forces alone were not strong enough to match those of Octavian, and he was also forced to break away from the fight and followed Cleopatra back to Egypt. They made their way back to Alexandria, where all they could do was wait for Octavian to arrive. It is rumored that Cleopatra sent messages to Octavian, asking that her children should inherit Egypt and that Antony should be allowed to live in exile in Egypt. She offered Octavian money in the future and even sent him lavish gifts. Octavian then communicated to Cleopatra that if she kills Mark Antony, that he might work something out with her. This is when she conceives her fiendish plot. She has a message sent to Mark Antony saying that she had killed herself. Once Mark Antony heard that his loved one was dead, he committed suicide by stabbing himself with a sword. However, it did not kill him instantly like he anticipated. Instead, he has himself taken to where Cleopatra's body was supposed to be, only to find Cleopatra alive and well. So, he advised her to seek Octavian's mercy. Octavian entered Alexandria and assured Cleopatra that he would keep her alive and treat her well as a prisoner, but offered no explanation about his future plans for her kingdom. Cleopatra soon realized that Octavian could never treat her as anything but an enemy, and that he would take her back to Rome to have her and her children paraded through the streets in victory. 
She decided to send Caesarian away to Upper Egypt with plans for him to flee and be safe. Cleopatra, however, decides to stay behind. If she's going out, she's going to go out on her own terms. Initially, she planned to commit suicide by setting fire to the mausoleum where she had collected her treasures. However, Roman soldiers found entry into the mausoleum and were able to stop her and lock her up in her chamber. Now, this is where historians differ. The most popular belief is that Cleopatra arranged for a poisonous asp to be smuggled in to her inside of a basket of figs. She then wrote a letter to Octavian and convinced his guards to take it to him and leave her alone while she took a bath. The letter told Octavian she wished to be buried with Antony. When Octavian read the letter, he knew immediately what it meant and rushed to her room. But it was too late. She had killed herself by having the asp bite her. In Plutarch's retelling of this tale, he suggests that an implement like a comb was used to introduce the toxin by scratching. Other historians say that she injected the poison with a needle or some kind of poisonous ointment was used. Cleopatra's physician, Olympus, did not explain her cause of death and no venomous snake was found with her body. However, she did have tiny puncture wounds on her arm that could have been caused by either a needle or a snake bite. In August of 30 BC, at the age of 39, Cleopatra was dead. And as the story goes, Octavian granted them the mercy to be buried together in royal fashion. However, he seized her and Mark Antony's kids and sent them to Rome with Octavian's sister and former wife of Mark Antony, Octavia, as their guardian, which is awkward as fuck. Then convinced Caesarian to return back to Alexandria under the false pretense that Octavian would allow him to be king and then promptly executed him upon arrival. Octavian was convinced that there was room for only one Caesar in the world, and that was him. After the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra, Octavian returned home a hero and celebrated his conquest of Egypt and his consolidation of power in Rome. Soon after, and partly because of his own insistence, the Senate granted him the additional name Augustus, which is what historians refer to him as from 27 BC until his death in 1480. Also, fun fact, in honor of Julius Caesar, the Senate voted to rename the month of his birth after him, so the month quintiles was changed to July. Aww. After the relative peace and prosperity Augustus brought to the empire, the Senate allowed for a month to be named after him as well. Instead of picking the month of his birth like Caesar, he decided to rename the month sextile to August, in memory of his greatest victory, the death of Cleopatra. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's a fact. fun little fun fact. Yeah, I like so that. every time August rolls around, the whole entire name, August, is just... Death of Cleopatra. Death of Cleopatra. Anyway, after Octavian's win against Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he was eager to tell his story. Octavian had previously shown little mercy to surrendered enemies and acted in ways that had proven unpopular with the Roman people. So it's no surprise that Octavian had Cleopatra's story shaped to his benefit. Even after Cleopatra and Mark Antony's death, he was still spreading Roman propaganda about how she was a villainous foreigner. This could explain why Plutarch's retelling of Cleopatra's life goes out of its way to mention how gracious Octavian was to strike a deal with her or how generous he was to have allowed them to be buried together. And as much as Octavian liked to talk about his gracious deed, he conveniently never said where they were buried. 
It's no doubt that keeping the location of the tomb secret played to Octavian's advantage. He knew that if he published where she was buried, it would allow her legacy to live on. Egypt would view her as a martyr against the Roman Empire, and that was something Octavian couldn't allow. He knew he couldn't erase her entirely from history, but in keeping her final resting place a secret and continuing to spread his Roman propaganda, he succeeded nonetheless. Plutarch wrote that Cleopatra was buried in a temple of Isis, but that's all. This could be either intentionally vague, because he doesn't actually know where the hell she's buried, or some people believe that this is indicating that she was actually buried at her palace, which was on an island off the coast of Alexandria. Either way, in 365 AD, her palace succumbed to earthquakes and a tsunami and sank into the Alexandria Harbor, taking her life under the waves and erasing it from history, just like Octavian. And what's even more heartbreaking, not only were the official documents written about Cleopatra's life and rule, but also the countless amounts of other works inside the Library of Alexandria were unintentionally destroyed in a fire by Julius Caesar during his civil war in 48 BC. During Ptolemy I's reign, he was a glutton for books. And anyone who brought a book into the city of Alexandria found it quickly confiscated. The book was then copied and then the original was put into the library, and the copy was given back to the owner. In short, many original works inside that library were lost forever. This is why every piece of information that we can find about Cleopatra is priceless. But scientists and archaeologists have found remains of building stones, statues, and pillars in Alexandria's Bay. Archaeologist Frank Gaudio has found remains that seem to point to the royal palace, he found massive Greek-style columns that were carved from red Egyptian granite that were also decorated with Egyptian symbols. Gaudio and his team also discovered 550 square meters, which is about 5,920 square feet, of limestone pavement, a luxury that wouldn't be found outside of the royal palace. Alongside this pavement, he also found more columns lining it, and an even better sign that he might be at the royal palace was when he and his team uncovered a carving of a coiled snake on a stone block with the inscription saying eternal life, which seems like something you might find, I don't know, in a tomb. Beyond the limestone pavement, he discovered a foundation for a structure that was 62 meters long or 203 feet long. He was able to test the wood from the structure and confirmed that it dated back to 200 years prior to when Cleopatra was born, which would be accurate to when the palace was built. Gaudio and his team also found an almost perfectly preserved statue of the high priestess of the cult Isis, holding a jar depicting the god Osiris, the god of the dead. Along with that, they also excavated two sphinx, which are typically used to mark temple entrances. And one sphinx was identified to be Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII. So it's very likely that this was a small temple that worshipped the god Isis and was guarded by Cleopatra's father. We know that Cleopatra was buried in a temple of Isis. Could this be it? If it is, the likeliness of actually finding Cleopatra's mummy is slim to none. If the royal palace, let alone the entire island, could be destroyed by natural disasters, it's very unlikely that a simple mummy would survive, especially underwater. However, there is a new theory that brings hope to finding Cleopatra. 
Dr. Kathleen Martinez believes that she knows why Cleopatra's tomb has eluded us for years, and she also believes she knows exactly where she is buried. Dr. Martinez believes that people have overlooked the significance of the belief Cleopatra held that she and Mark Antony were the living embodiments of Isis and her husband Osiris, and that the circumstances of their deaths mirrored the gods they styled themselves after. She also believes that there is more significance to Cleopatra dying by a snake bite. It surely would have been much easier to smuggle in a vial of venom or poison, but in ancient Egypt, snakes or cobras were seen as the protectors to pharaohs. Also, there were even some goddesses that took the form of snakes, and pharaohs being the living gods, she was sending her last message that she died as a goddess would. With this theory, Dr. Martinez believes that Cleopatra and Mark Antony would be buried in a temple that would be dedicated to both these gods, Isis and Osiris. And that temple is Taposiris Magna. Taposiris Magna is the name of a city, as well as the Egyptian temple of the same name inside of that city. During Cleopatra's time, the city of Taposiris Magna was an important port town and became the center for the religious festival in honor of the god Osiris. The temple was constructed during Ptolemy II's reign over 2,300 years ago and is said to hold the tomb of Osiris himself. To Dr. Martinez, this was the perfect place for Cleopatra and Mark Antony to be buried. She then began her self-funded expedition in 2002. Since then, her team have found 27 tombs, 20 of which were shaped like vaulted sarcophagi. The remaining seven consist of staircases leading to simple burial chambers. Inside of these tombs, they have found a total of 10 mummies. And all of the mummies were buried with their faces turned towards the temple, which means it is likely the temple contained the burial of someone of significant royalty. The tombs themselves indicate that they were constructed during the Greco-Roman period, thus confirming Cleopatra's time. They have also found a massive shrine to the goddess Isis, including a large devotional statue of her and a description of her importance. In addition, they also found an altar, which was used to make offerings to the gods. And inside this altar, they found about 200 coins. Now, coins are a great way to date when a temple was in use. And after much scrubbing, they revealed these coins were all coins with Cleopatra's face on them, proof that this temple was still in use during her reign. There are also dozens of catacombs and tombs below the complex that her team have been tirelessly excavating. They have excavated a total of 16 catacombs, and the remains and everything else that's been discovered inside of the tombs have also all been confirmed from the time of Cleopatra. It's possible that these shafts were the tombs of important people, and Dr. Martinez believes that Cleopatra and Mark Antony could have been buried in a deep shaft similar to those already discovered inside of the temple. Unfortunately, though, they have not found any sure-tell signs that Cleopatra's tomb is even there. They have found a sphinx head, which, again, we know was used to guard royal tombs, and Dr. Martinez believes that it's only a matter of time before they find the whereabouts of Cleopatra. And yet, some people think we are searching in vain. Some people believe that, out of anger from her suicide, Octavian didn't bury her in a tomb with Mark Antony, or let alone at all, in any sort of royal fashion. But... He merely said that he did, to make himself sound more merciful and to basically make himself look better to the Roman people. All that we know for sure is her ending was tragic, and she remains today one of history's iconic superstars. However, 
she's not the harlot that Hollywood or Shakespeare's love story makes her out to be. Cleopatra was that of a vigorous and exceptionally able queen who was wildly intelligent, confident, and ambitious. She was a woman who knew what she wanted and knew how to get it. She was truly one of the greatest rulers of Egypt. This is the Cleopatra that has been lost to us in time, and the search continues still to find her. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> so what do you think? Is she out there? You think that, uh, I don't know, what do you think? I believe this doctor's onto something. I know. I, I feel like there's too much, like, with these, with all the, like, the coins and the people, like, facing the particular, like, direction. Mm-hmm. Like, that has to be leading to something. Right. Yeah. No, there's too much to say that she wouldn't be out there. I feel like she might be in Taposiris Magnum, but mm-hmm. also maybe it's just a Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that she's buried in her palace. I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense because maybe Octavian was just like, fuck it. And yeah. buried her there before he left. Toss her in it. Call it a fucking day. Right. Because why, why would he put in the think effort? to put, yeah, to put her in that temple? Unless she specifically requested it, which we don't have no record. Know. We don't mm-hmm. know. It's also a popular belief, too, that he, that she was buried in her palace. Mm-hmm. But then her loyal followers and some priests actually dug her back up or removed her and then took her to Taposiris Magnum. Maybe in doing that, thought that they were saving her in some aspect because Egyptians were like huge believers in the afterlife. Yeah. And they thought that putting her in a temple for a goddess of which she believed to be the embodiment of would help her and give her, like, a little boost in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that they moved her there and thought, okay, this is going to help her out, and also it's going to hide her from Octavian because why would he think that she's buried here? So that way we can constantly know where she's at. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, we don't even know if she's even buried with Mark Antony because uh, Plutarch tells us that Mark Antony was cremated. So... Was he mummified and buried with her? Or was she just buried with, like, a jar of his ashes? We don't know. Tis a mystery. Mm, Yeah, I don't know. It's a mysterious burrito. Mm, Mysterious burrito. The elusive burrito. But you know what is an elusive, Shelby? Uh, Our Facebook page is an elusive. It's It's fucking not. Mm. It's just the creepy burrito. Head on over there. And you can also hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at the Creepy Burrito. Also not elusive. <laughs> sure is not. You know what else isn't fucking elusive? Tell me, Shelby, please. <laughs> Write us a sweet ass review <laughs> on Facebook or on iTunes, and you can rate us on whatever your streaming app might be. Also, if you're feeling a little froggy or snaky, yeah, or scaraby. You can write us an email about... What does that even mean? I don't know. I was just naming Egyptian things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they like scarabs. They put scarabs everywhere. Okay. Yeah. But what does it mean to feel scaraby? I don't know. (laughs) Write us a fucking email. (laughs) Write us a fucking email. Tell us what it means to be scaraby. (laughs) And we might read it on the air. (laughs) Well, hopefully you guys are feeling satisfied from the amount of sauce Renee fucking just poured upon you. So much sauce. 
upon this Wednesday. Overflowing. Overflowing in sauce to hold you over until... More sauce than your body has room for. <laughs> Yikes, that's terrifying. Cleopatra, the thirst mutilator. And on that note, um... Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. to see what it's real. <laughs> <laughs> Little Pharaoh with you, what does he want? <laughs> Shut up. I'm pizza, sorry. pizza. <laughs> pizza, pizza. That's the only thing he said. That's a baby Pharaoh. It's just pizza, pizza. And if no one gives him pizza, pizza, off with their head. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's real. You can drink from the Nile.